It's an amazing thing uh, that on this day, uh, all of the turbulence and the violence and the protest that have invaded and infected places like Seattle, Portland, Chicago, New York, have now managed to find their way to the Gulf of Mexico, where two storms at the same time appear to be dancing as two-step just south of our border. We've got a little rain going on today, but we're in the house of the Lord, safe and secure from all alarm, as the old song says, leaning on the everlasting arms of Jesus Christ. And boy, if we've ever been reminded of how important it is to have a rock that you can lean upon, it's these days today. Isn't that right? And so we're thankful. A lot of times Christianity have, has been um, ridiculed as a crutch. You're darn tootin' it's a crutch. Lean not on your own understanding, the Bible says. There's something better to lean your life against, and I proudly lean mine against the rock who is Jesus Christ my living Lord. That's a good place for an amen right there. Amen. It's great to welcome all of you who are watching online. We know that uh, maybe even a majority of our people still with us online, and that's great. Uh, I've said many times, I don't know what we'd have done if this pandemic had hit us 25, 30 years ago. I guess we'd have had taken the church underground, but we're grateful uh, that uh, technology has enabled us to stay connected to you in these important days. And we're grateful also to welcome our Spanish Trail brothers and sisters, all the friends over there. And uh, we're delighted just to be together and to celebrate the goodness of God. <clears throat> now, here's the thing. Today was supposed to be our baptism celebration Sunday. We have one of those every year. And we are going to be baptizing, by the way, at the end of our hour today. We have some that are scheduled to be baptized and, uh, you know, part of uh, the thought process as we're going through our series in the Apostles' Creed was to keep Baptism Celebration Sunday or not to keep it um, because we could not go to the beach this year. We were not permitted by the Santa Rosa Authority to take a big group at the beach. We've never been rained out at a beach baptism at a beach, but it may have happened today anyway. And so if we're ever not going to have one, we picked a good day not to do it. Water may be rolling a little bit uh, today, so there probably wouldn't have been peaceful baptisms on the beach. So the Lord is good, and we're grateful, and we will be baptizing today. But I thought that we would just go ahead and preach the message that we had planned to preach today, because baptism is a very important core conviction of our church, and it's something that we never want to get too far away from us and too far away from our people. When we started this year together at Hillcrest for the first two months of the year, January and February, every Lord's Day on those eight Sundays, there was only one Sunday that we did not perform a baptism. And then, of course, COVID hit, kind of made a train wreck of everything. Uh, but we've been baptizing some folks in recent days, have baptized several over in the student center in student worship the last couple of Wednesday nights. We'll be baptizing today. And what we want to do is to keep the waters of baptism at our church constantly stirring as we slowly but surely <clears throat> get back into our normal 
traffic patterns as it pertains to worship and connecting with others and serving the world and being together and doing life together in more normal and customary ways. And so if it's okay with you, I thought we would go ahead and just do a teaching about the significance and the importance of baptism and to bring it within the context of this series of messages that we picked back up a couple of weeks ago after having a long hiatus. I started this series called I Believe looking at the core convictions of our faith. It's important to not only know that you believe, but to know what you believe and to know what are some of the most crucial aspects of our faith and practice and belief here uh, at Hillcrest as well as in the larger evangelical uh, community. And so what I want to do is kind of slip a message about believers' baptism into our series from the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed, if you'll remember, is a Uh, a tool, a confessional statement that's been used by the church for over 1,800 years. It is, without a doubt, the earliest um, systematic confession of faith that was used by by the church. It doesn't cover everything that we believe as a people, but it covers among the most important things. In each of these messages, we've simply been approaching by entitling them, uh, I Believe, in whatever the element of the Apostles' Creed we're looking at on that Sunday. And today's message is simply, I believe, in the ordinance of baptism. Now, in the sermon bumper that just rolled on the screen a few minutes ago, you probably uh, would imagine that uh, nothing about baptism was uttered in that trailer. And that's true. But it's kind of contained underneath the surface in the section of the Apostles' Creed that deals with the church. We haven't gotten there yet. But there's a section of the creed that simply says, I believe in the holy universal church, and I believe in the communion of saints. And no doubt our understanding, or at least part of our understanding, of exactly what those two concepts mean, what it means to be a part of the communion of saints known as the people of God in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ involves a proper understanding of baptism because it's in and through baptism that you demonstrate your faith in Christ and your belonging to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the people of God. Now, after the service today, if you'd like more information about baptism, there's a place in the Next Step Center that will have some information there. If you are awaiting baptism, there's also a person there that can help you with even scheduling your baptism for a subsequent Sunday. We're not necessarily doing an all call today as we normally do. Um, Number one, because in these days of social distancing, we knew we wouldn't have a packed house. And number two, one of the things that we wanted to avoid was a packed dressing room. Y'all know what I mean? (laughs) So we didn't want 25 or 30 people packed into our dressing rooms this morning in a way that might not be altogether safe. And so we're just kind of taking a measured approach across a number of Sundays But if you haven't been baptized, you're here, you're a regular part of our church, you need to be baptized, we'd like to baptize you over the next little bit here at our church, and there'll be some information in the back concerning what that is all about. And then we'll surely take questions if you have them at the end of the hour uh, today. What I'd like to do this morning is just take a few minutes and try to answer some biblical and theological questions about baptism Uh, as we understand it, things that I think are the most important things to understand about baptism. I'm going to give you six, if you're taking notes uh, this morning, things to just consider 
uh, as we delve into the subject, I believe in the ordinance of baptism. The first thing I want you to understand concerning the significance of baptism is that it's something that Christ commands us to do. Baptism is a command of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you see that command most obviously demonstrated in the great commission of our Lord in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. Some of the most familiar verses to us here at Hillcrest because it forms the fabric of the purpose of why we and every other New Testament church actually exists. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, based on the authority of Christ, he commissions his people, his church, go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, knowing that I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. You've got several things in there in that very important statement that forms among the last words of Jesus prior to his ascension. They kind of serve as the marching orders of the people of God until Christ comes again, or as he says it here, until the end of the age that's marked by the second coming of our Lord Jesus. And the primary command there is for the church, of course, to make disciples. Why does Hillcrest exist? To make disciples. That's why any New Testament church, we're here to make disciples, fully devoted, fully sold out, fully committed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We couch it in terms of helping people and becoming like Christ. That's who we are and fundamentally why we're here. And a part of making disciples, Jesus elaborates, includes baptizing them and then teaching them to observe everything that Christ has commanded us. And so a disciple is a follower of Jesus, somebody that's becoming like Christ. And there's no way that you can really separate your identity as a disciple of Christ from being baptized publicly as a demonstration of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism is a command of Jesus. And so to refuse to be baptized is not to follow Jesus Christ because Jesus makes it very clear that a part of being a disciple is to follow his example and to be baptized as a public testimony of your faith in him. And it's a command that our Lord gives to the church without respect to time. He gives us the command to make disciples and to baptize disciples and to teach disciples without a time limit on it. I am with you until the very end of the age, which means that baptizing people is a part and parcel of why we're here until Christ comes again. It should never lose its emphasis. It should never lose its importance in terms of who we are and how we function as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, not only does Jesus command us to be baptized, but he provides a living personal example in his own life. Everybody here know Jesus was baptized, right? And there's a you know, significant teaching uh, across the New Testament about baptism, but I'm just here to say this morning, if the Bible didn't have anything to say about baptism other than the fact that my Lord did it, that's all I need to do it myself. Because I won't be like Christ. I don't want to be like Mike, as the old commercial used to say. I want to be like Christ. Becoming like Christ means doing as he did. And the fact that he was baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, the sinless son of God. John was baptizing, the Bible says, a baptism of repentance under the forgiveness of sin. He didn't have any of that. 
had nothing to repent of, nothing to turn from. He was God in the flesh. And yet the Bible teaches that he went from his home in Nazareth in Galilee, in the north country of Israel, down to where John was, baptizing in the wilderness of Judah. It's a desolate, barren place. That's about a 60 to 70 mile walk for Jesus, one way. The sinless son of God goes to a distant cousin who's baptizing a baptism of repentance under the forgiveness of sin, something that Christ had none of, but yet submitted himself to baptism for at least two fundamental reasons. One, when he stepped into the water, he stepped in your place. Jesus is identifying with you in his baptism and he's identifying with me in his baptism, the very people that he had come to die on a cross to save. But even more to the point, Jesus is providing for us an example of what we should do. We should follow him as disciples and be baptized. And so this is a very significant thing. The baptism is both something that's a command of Christ coming at the end of his ministry, and it's an example provided by Christ at the beginning of his ministry. And so when you think about it from the three-year time perspective of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, his ministry is framed by baptism. Example at the beginning, command at the end. Everybody tracking with me say amen. Now, based on that, would you say baptism is a pretty important part of every believer's life? Amen. Second thing I want you to notice is baptism is a symbol of my salvation. It's a symbol. And the key word there is symbol. Baptism symbolizes the fact that you've become one with Jesus Christ. Sometimes we call that uh, salvation union with Christ. And it's exactly what happens to a believer. We often frame that kind of language around marriage. Two cease to be two, and they become one flesh, right? That's what the marriage bond is. Two ceasing to be two and becoming one, union with and in one another. And in the same way, it's a picture of the gospel because that's what happens to us when we're saved. We become one with Christ. Christ moves into my life. Christ in me, the Bible says, is the hope of glory. I am in Christ. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, union with Christ. And that's what we're symbolically demonstrating when we submit to the waters of baptism. Look with me, for example, at Romans 6, beginning in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, watch this, baptized what? into Christ, and you'd expect him to say baptized into water, but he doesn't say that. Baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Christ in me. I'm baptized into his death, baptized into his resurrection. That happens, of course, at the moment that we're saved. There's an element of spirit baptism implied in that very statement. That's symbolized by our water baptism. Because, see, I cannot see necessarily inside of you 
the spirit baptism that's taken place. It ought to be evident and obvious through the fruit of the spirit as you live your life. But water baptism symbolizes the spirit baptism that's taken place invisibly within you. And what's most important about baptism, I think, is this direct connection that it makes to the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and my identification with that by faith. Baptism gets its meaning from the death of Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin. Baptism gets its meaning from the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead three days later, the victory over sin and death that he had died to provide. That's what the resurrection gave us, victory over sin, victory over death. And that's what you see pictured in baptism. When you watch a baptism by immersion, you see visually pictured before you, uh, before you the gospel of Jesus Christ. The same gospel that Paul taught, 1 Corinthians 15, for I present to you that which is of first importance, namely that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he arose on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you see it pictured without words. Every time a person is baptized in water. Now, let me just make it very clear. Y'all still with me? Say amen. Uh, it's not the baptism that makes you one with Christ. It's a symbol. Remember the key word in the point is the word symbol. Nothing magic about the water. It's just hard old Florida water. And just because it's in a church tub does not sanctify it as water. It's just water. So if you go into the baptismal pool or into the ocean or wherever the church is baptizing, and you've never been born again, you've never been baptized, you've just taken a bath. And it's not even a sanctified bath. You just got wet. No, there's nothing magic about the water. Faith is what unites me to Jesus Christ. I'm saved by faith, according to God's grace, in the person of Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. But again, faith is a matter of the heart. It's not directly visible. But baptism is that outward visible symbol. Getting back to the marriage illusion, that's kind of what happens when a person gets married. My son's getting married later on this year, and I'm, I'm going to do it. But there's something that's going to happen uh, to Seth and, and, and Anne when they get married. And it's not going to be readily visible. Two are going to cease to be two, and they are going to become one. Right in front of the eyes, right? There's going to be a union that takes place that's really impossible to see with the naked eye. But it's going to happen because the Bible says that's what happens, right? We believe the Word of God. Amen. The way you reflect that, that union that takes place, what is it that makes a man and a woman one? Well, it's the confession of their mouth that they make in front of witnesses for all to hear, I will, I do. And then it's the commitment of their heart that they've made to one another. And through those things, that inward commitment verified by verbal witness, two cease to be two and they become one in a way that's visible by people. Those of you that have been married remember probably the time you got married, number of people gathered. You can remember the vows that you shared. And then you exchanged rings, right? And uh, I wear one. I had an 
automobile accident a few years ago and my hand swelled up and it's never swelled back down two years later. And so I've got to get my real ring sized. I went a, a while without wearing a ring. And to show you the importance of the ring, one of our friends over at Spanish Trail was watching me preach one Sunday and came to the conclusion Judy and I were headed for divorce because I wasn't wearing my wedding ring. And I wanted to say to him, why weren't you listening to the sermon, big boy? But it just goes to show you, you know, the ring matters. People look, but I've got this one that I ordered here that you can actually bend, paid $12 for it, and it communicates the same thing as the $300 one, which is now with the price of gold, probably a $1,200 one, which means I need to get it back on my hand. Somebody say amen this morning. But the ring communicates. Didn't make me married to Judy. I didn't have to have a ring to get married to her. The ring is there to communicate something. I'm not ashamed of my precious bride, and I want you to know it. And so when you see the ring on my finger, you make an assumption. I am madly in love with that woman, and you'd be right about that. I've made a commitment to somebody, and I'm not ashamed of her. So to refuse baptism after salvation is to refuse to wear the wedding ring of the Christ who died for you. It's a statement of shame, and you never want that. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me in this life, I'll be ashamed of you in the next. That's what he said. And I don't want Christ to be ashamed of me in this life or the next, especially in the next. So I publicly take my stand, not because I feel threatened by statements like that, but because of my love for Christ who gave his life so that I would never have to die. And so, baptism is a public symbol of my salvation. Third, baptism is immersion in water. At Hillcrest, we take you all the way under. We hold you under until you bubble at Hillcrest. (laughs) Or until you say tithe, whichever comes first. Amen? That's a joke. But the Romans 6 passage that we looked at a moment ago describes baptism as a burial and a resurrection, a death and a resurrection. And that's a picture provided by immersion that no other mode of baptism can provide. You can't get a picture of your identification with the burial of Christ or with the resurrection of Christ by sprinkling or by pouring water over your head or by dabbing some water on your forehead. No, the, the biblical picture of baptism is by immersion. Going under the water symbolizes your identification with the death and the burial of Christ, that you've been crucified with Christ and that your old life is now over and done with. When you're genuinely saved, there's a part of every person's life that dies. There is no eternal life without first a death. And that's volume one of your life, life before Christ. And that book is closed and it goes on the shelf and it's over and done with. And from the moment of your salvation, There's a brand new life. That's volume two of your life. And if you're alive today, the chapters are still being written. God is still, you're still on a journey with the Lord and and your life in service to Christ is still being written. And you'll carry that all the way to the judgment seat of Christ one day where it'll be fully reviewed. Volume one is dead and buried. And that's symbolized when you go under the water. And then when you come up out of the water, it's a symbol of new life in the Lord Jesus Christ, resurrection life marked by Christ in you, the very source of a peace that passes understanding and the source of your power that's desperate, especially in days like these in which we live. 
It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a statement of the wisdom and the knowledge of God that now resides in you, a wisdom that's especially important for times like these that are so confusing. Now, again, it's not the act of baptism that does that. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but baptism surely does picture it. And that's what the word baptize means, by the way. The word baptize is really what we call a transliteration from the original Greek. The Greek word is baptizo. It just sounds like and looks like the word baptize. And that word means to submerge. It doesn't mean to sprinkle. If that were the pattern that the biblical writers wanted us to understand, they would have used a different word. They used a word that was intentional, a word that specifically means to plunge or to dip or to submerge, kind of like you would a plate in a in a sink to wash it, you dip it under the water, you plunge it under the water, you submerge it. I'm told that classical Greek writers used this word to describe the sinking of a ship in battle. When a ship sinks at sea, it goes all the way under the water. That boy is baptized, right? And so we baptize by immersion fundamentally because that's exactly what the word means. But we baptize by immersion because of what the word symbolizes as well, this beautiful picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and my identification with it. Acts 8, for example, the deacon Philip leads the Ethiopian eunuch to faith, and the Bible says in verse 36, as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, behold, here is water, what prevents me from being baptized? And verse 38 says, he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and Philip and eunuch, uh, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, of course, what's important there is they both got off of the chariot and went down into the water, which implies they needed to be in the water. If all Philip needed was a little bit of water, he would have just simply said, stay in the chariot and give me a cup, and I'll be right back. But he doesn't do that. They both go down into the water, and then they both come up out of the water, and that tends to be the pattern that we see all throughout the Bible. In John chapter 3, when John the Baptist was baptizing, the Bible says he moved from place to place to place. Well, why didn't he just stay in one place? Well, because the water would dry up, and he would go to find another place where there was more water. John also was baptizing, John 3 tells us, at Anon near Salim, because why? Water was what? Say it out loud. Water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. Now, again, if you don't need much water, you don't need a plentiful supply of water. You just need a little bit. But John moved around because of the nature of baptism. And so, the practice of the early church is our practice today. We baptize in a way that gives us a full-orbed picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and our identification with it by faith as followers of Christ. Fourth, baptism is in the name of our Trinitarian God. In fact, that's in the Great Commission. Jesus tells us when you baptize them, not only to baptize, but a portion of how to baptize, baptizing them in the name of, say it with me, in the name of the Father and of the, and of the Holy Spirit, Trinitarian God. And each member of the Trinity was involved in your salvation. The Bible says God the Father chose us before the foundation of the world. It was God the Father that instituted the plan for redemption and reconciliation. 
that would ultimately be secured by the death of his son on the cross. So God the Father was involved, and then speaking of God the Son, God the Son was critical because he was the one who would bear the penalty of sin as a substitutionary sacrifice who would come on a mission, a singular mission, to die on the cross in the place of unregenerate, alien, enemy, ungodly sinners. He died in our place. Next week, I'm going to be preaching a single message about the cross, which is almost an impossible thing to do because it needs a series. But I'll be talking about the element of the Apostles' Creed that talks about the death of Christ on the cross. And so Christ was critical in your salvation. God the Father, God the Son, then God the Holy Spirit. No one comes to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And how does God draw sinners unto himself? He does it by means of the Holy Spirit who convicts us, the Bible says, John 14, 15, 16. He convicts us of sin. He convicts us of righteousness. He convicts us of the judgment to come. It is the Spirit of God who moves us by his convicting power to respond according to faith in the gospel of Christ. And then once we respond with faith, it is the Spirit of God who baptizes us and indwells us. And as Paul says in the first chapter of Ephesians, seals us unto the final redemption at the coming of Christ. So you see how all three of the members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, were and are active in your transformation from lost, unregenerate sinner to redeemed, cleansed, living uh, saint, follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're baptized in his name. And when we baptize someone in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, we're calling upon God in all of his fullness. We acknowledge that we're dependent on God to be saved, that we're not here on ourselves of our own volition. We're not here because of anything we did. We're here because of everything God did for us. And then fifth, baptism is through the local church. I just don't think you can separate baptism from the mission and ministry of the local church. And in a way, baptism under the new covenant, and all of us understand that in the Bible there's an old covenant that's marked by the Old Testament, and the key player there is the law of God. And then there's the new covenant, which is reflected in the New Testament. And the key element there is faith in what God has promised to do and has actually accomplished in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel. And baptism functions in the New Covenant era for us, kind of like circumcision functioned in the Old Covenant era. This is why oftentimes when you're reading the New Testament, you'll often find guys like the Apostle Paul mentioning circumcision and baptism almost in the same breath. Not that they're the same thing, but they function in similar kinds of ways in that both of them are signs that we belong not only to God, but that we belong to the people of God as well. And see, that's something that's critically important because baptism 
New Testament baptism not only identifies us with Christ, it identifies us with the church. It identifies us with what the scriptures call the body of Christ. And so baptism becomes a sign of belonging. It's a sign, same way that circumcision was. It was a physical sign that made unique the person that bore it. And the same is true with with baptism. The, the local church is the most obvious expression of the people of God in any community. How do you identify who belongs to the people of God in any community? The local church. The local church. That's why the local church is the hope of the world outside of Christ. The local church ministering in the name of Christ because we represent the community of faith. We represent the people of God. And it's the local church that's been entrusted as stewards of the gospel of God's grace. It's the local church that preaches the word of God. It's the local church that assembles together to worship the true and living God. It's the local church that comes together as a community for fellowship. The very thing that most believers have missed during this time of separation and alienation wasn't my preaching. It was community, fellowship, the joy of God's people being together. And so part of our responsibility is to ensure what sometimes is referred to as regenerate membership. In other words, membership in the body of Christ is the membership of disciples who've been born again. And as the steward of the gospel, it's our responsibility to make sure that those who become part of the community of faith have actually been born again into the community of faith. That hasn't always been the case. There was a time where this was a great divisive part of the body of Christ. There was a time, even in American Christianity, two centuries, three centuries ago, where church membership was viewed differently. You know, you could be, everybody was encouraged in the community to become a member of the church. And once you became a member of the church, then it became the work of the church to make sure everybody in the church was saved. And I just don't find that anywhere in the Bible. Many of you have heard of Jonathan Edwards, who's the most important pastor theologian in the history of our country. Jonathan Edwards was fired. How do you fire Jonathan Edwards? I don't know, but he was. And he was fired from his church in Northampton, Massachusetts. You know why? In part, because he insisted that only born-again believers could be members of a local church. Now, we hear that and we think, well, duh, right? That hadn't always been the case. And yet, biblically, that's spot on. And so, a part of that responsibility is to ensure, even before we baptize people, that those people that we baptize have a clear, consistent testimony that reflects faith in Jesus Christ. And then six, baptism is for believers. Baptism is for believers. None of what we've talked about this morning really makes any sense at all if a person is still in a condition of lostness, regardless of how old they are, young or old, who they are. Baptism is an expression of faith only for believers. And this is one reason, by the way, we don't baptize babies at Hillcrest. We don't baptize infants at our church because we practice what's known as believer's baptism. Say that together with me, 
believer's baptism. That's right. First comes faith, then comes baptism, which is really important to make sure you get the cart before, or the horse before the cart <laughs> and not the cart before the horse. And there's there may be some people here today and you need to get that proper, you got baptized years ago, but you never really were saved. Well, again, if that was the case, you really didn't get baptized. Even you may have a certificate framed on the wall. But if you were not born again, you did not get baptized. You just took a bath. No, believer's baptism, every example, and most of them are in the book of Acts, every example of baptism that we have in the Bible, there's first a confession of faith followed by baptism in water. It's an exclusive pattern throughout the book of Acts. Look at Galatians 3.26, says the same thing. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through what? Say it out loud, through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Salvation through faith followed by baptism into Christ, which is a visible, a visible symbol that you through faith have put on Christ. And so salvation is in Christ alone. Baptism is a symbol of what Christ has already done in a person's life. There's a lot more I could say about baptism. I think those are the six most important biblical things that everybody needs to know about baptism. And because of that, and because of what we understand from the scripture, baptism is not only significant, it's serious. And a lot of people don't want to take it seriously. And I've never really fully figured that out because it's serious business. It's command of Christ, which followed the example of Christ himself, which then formed the pattern of the church in its infancy stages all throughout the centuries. It's easy to understand why somebody's never been born again, somebody's never found new life, who's never met Jesus would balk at being baptized. But boy, if Jesus has changed your life, if you have a, a full understanding of what Christ did for you at the cross, the agony of his suffering, the shedding of his blood, all that Jesus went through to provide life everlasting, man, how can anybody who's been moved by a vision of Christ, broken and bleeding, hanging on a cross, refuse to take their stand for Christ and publicly wave the flag for Jesus. You don't have to walk 60 or 70 miles to do it like Jesus did either. Sometimes we will drive down to the beach to do it, not today. But most of the time, it's just a short walk upstairs to very comfortable water that's as warm as what you'd put in your bathtub. We provide what you need very convenient, quick, and simple. But how significant to stand up publicly and say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is God's word and all God's people said, amen. amen.